Well, good morning, church, and good morning to those of you that are camping. I hope that you guys have had a great weekend. I am, as uh, the time that you're going to be hearing this, Lord willing, I will be down with my family in North Carolina, so I'm sorry I couldn't be with you directly, but I'm grateful to Jace and to Michael, who are making this recording work for us. I assume that, uh, that we have prayed a little bit, but let me pray before we start. Father, we are grateful for your word especially a difficult topic like this in Job, where we think about what it means for us to suffer and to feel frustrated under that and yet to still trust you. Lord, since that describes so much of our lives, I pray that you'd use this passage and your word to shape our hearts. So no matter where we are right now, I pray that you'd help us to listen and to be moved by your spirit as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Job chapter 1, verse 1, is our Wisdom 301 kind of introduction. And if you weren't with us last week, or if you weren't with us in uh, some of the eight weeks before that, Wisdom 102 in, or 101 in this series has been from the book of Proverbs, where we largely saw that, it, that wisdom says that if you fear the Lord and live in certain ways, your life will go well. And that if you live in foolish ways, your life will go poorly. That was Wisdom 101. We saw that in a few different areas. Wisdom 201, the second course, came from the book of Ecclesiastes, where we realized through the, uh, the voice of the teacher, the preacher, the one who is gathering people together and trying to challenge the ideas by presenting exceptions to that rule. The, the, the teaching in Ecclesiastes said more or less, that's not the way life always works. It might work generally that way, but it doesn't always work that way. There are, in fact, no guarantees because you'll die or time will forget you or injustice or chance will have its effect on you. And so the fastest guy doesn't always win the race and the righteous people don't always get blessed. And sometimes wicked people prosper and it doesn't seem quite right, but you can still trust the Lord. That's Wisdom 201. And we spent... Four weeks looking at that. Last week, we started this field study of Job, a uh, test case in a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And we saw as we opened up this book that much like the scrolling scene at the beginning of a Star Wars movie, what we get is a non-Israelite named Job in the land of Uz or Uz, who is not from territory that we know of, it's a very obscure place written in a very heady language in a very uh, self-aware contribution to the thinking of the day that Proverbs and Ecclesiastes already addressed. Though there are wise ways to live, it doesn't always work out that way. And so what does that say about God? If Ecclesiastes asks, what does that say about us and how we should live? Job enters into that and it asks the question, what does a life, to use Ecclesiastes language, under the sun where things are difficult and where what seems to be, from what we saw from Job chapters 1 and 2, uh, the ideal person in Job who is blameless and in broad ways was the greatest man of his region and of his day, and in specific ways was a caring, good father who loved God, what does it say about God if that man suffers? Now, I want to make one point because of something that I said last week that particularly because of conversations about gender today may have been either because I misspoke or because it was misheard, a little confusing or even offensive. I mentioned that Job is almost written so that we could ask the question, what if Adam hadn't sinned? And in some ways, it kind of goes back to that garden uh, motif of Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent comes in and brings an accusation. And also in Genesis chapter 3, where the role of a woman is to tempt the man or to at least be a participant in that temptation. And we saw in Job that when Job's wife enters into the picture, we see Job responding in the way that Adam didn't. Now, if you want more about that, you can listen to what I said last week and you just jump on YouTube and listen to that. The reason I want to clarify 
is that what I didn't mean to imply and what I certainly hope you didn't infer from that is that I wanted to assign more godliness to men and more wickedness to women. Or I didn't want to in any way imply that women are the source of temptation and men are the ones who have to deal with that source of temptation. I could completely understand why given the way that things have uh, unfolded, particularly in our culture and just the way the narrative is going now, I could understand why that might have been part of what you heard. And I hope it wasn't something that was in any way triggering for you or difficult for you to hear. This is not, and I want to just reemphasize, this is not a point nor a book that makes any uh, gender study kind of observations. This is not a book, and I was not making a point last week, where only the men can relate to Job, and the only way that women enter into the picture somehow is as Job's wife. All of us see in Job a person we can relate to. All of us, men and women, see in Job a character who helps us dream a little bit about what human beings could be. Who could we be if we hadn't even fallen? And yet all of us can relate, much like Job, to moments when suffering enters into our life and we don't understand why. We don't understand what's going on. And so we have to read Job carefully. And I, again, I hope that the way that I made that point last week didn't add to any difficulty because Job is a difficult enough book. The second thing that we saw from last week that I do want to clarify and just remind you of is that Job is meant for us to take this question that the Satan, the Satan, the one who's called Satan in this book, that we're supposed to take that question seriously. We're not just supposed to call it satanic and try to dismiss it out of hand. All that we're going to see today is the best, uh, the best wisdom of the author's day. The author who wrote this book the best wisdom of his day in trying to unpack suffering. And though there are many ways that I'm sure societies have grown and improved since this book was written, this kind of represents the best thinking we have today about why we suffer. Especially if, in our eyes, we are blameless of the cause of that suffering. So as we dive in, we're going to see in the very beginning that as we ended last week in Job chapters 1 and 2, and we ended right around verse 10, that what Job has lost is everything that marked him as significant and godly. All of his wealth has disappeared. All of his health has disappeared. His familial status has disappeared. Everything has been in just a calamitous series of, of waves that are just hitting him. Or like we thought about last week, like a boxer who's just leveled Job and leaving him there on the canvas. But then it was hitting him again and again and kicking him when he's down. Job just has lost everything. And we meet that same Job covered in sores, sitting in ashes, having lost everything with a wife who's told him you should just give up and now we say see in verse 11 of chapter 2 now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him they came each from his own place Eliphaz the Temanite Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him and you'd read that verse and say well that's very nice of them but a few chapters later, a few decade of chapters later, what we are going to find actually is that friends is kind of a loose term. The friendship that they enjoy after these moments, especially as we see them arrive in verse 12 and 13, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward the heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. That friendship that we see right here in the very beginning of all this, it gets tested as soon as they open their mouths and unpack their assumptions. But the interesting thing is that though the friends have one approach, Job has a different approach. In truth, they really still make the same assumption or the same assertion about God. And that that leaves us with a question we're going to have to ask all the way through this. And that 
question is one that, that I hope will kind of be obvious to you. We're going we're gonna to face it right at the very end. But that question, I hope, becomes a little bit more obvious because if we ask the question here with a friend seated around Job, quietly waiting with him for seven days, what is Job's mindset at this point? Because so far, what we've heard from chapters one and two is that he defended God. God has given to me. God has taken away like we sang. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin. And here we come to chapter 3, verse 1. And now we, I think we can begin to relate to Job a little bit more. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, and I've put everything from this point on in italics. Because what I want you to remember is this is very thick poetry. There are a number of times throughout the book of Job that you will find, if, you, if your Bible has these kinds of designations, a little uh, subscript, a superscript of a number next to it that says something along the lines of, the meaning of this word is a little unclear. And that's because Job uses a bunch of words that other people just really don't use. And so the, what we hear, not just from Job, but from the author, is something written so well and, so, and such a heady sort of contribution to this conversation about suffering, but it's all poetic. Think the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's all written in poetic forms. And so where that is in poetic forms, I've just italicized that to remind us. But here, here are Job's poetic uh, mornings. He says, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. And after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, remember, so these are still his words all the way down to verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Verse 20 of this same soliloquy here. He says, why is life given at why has life given to him who is in misery? I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Guys, this is the setting. This is, and we have to remember, through all the thick dialogue that's going to come next, this is where Job is at. He is hurting. He is bleeding. He is covered in sores. And he is not at ease. He's not quiet. He has no rest. He's troubled. Or we see here, Job is hurting and Job is confused. And isn't that helpful? I feel like I can relate to the Job of Job chapter 3 a little bit more than I can relate to the Job of chapter 1 and 2. I can admire the Job of chapter 1 and 2. To have lost everything and still defend God feels like a noble task. And it feels like an ambition I would aspire to and hope for. Kind of like if you've ever thought about persecution and you think, what would happen if gunmen came in the door? Oh, I would want to make sure that I would give my life for the sake of those that I loved. But would I? I don't know because I fail in so many smaller ways. I, I see Job succeeding in chapters one and two, but this Job I can relate to because I, I feel that weakness when I'm hurting and when I'm confused. But after he says that, we are going to hear the first major argument, the first major approach that's taken to this dilemma before them that they've observed for a week. And what we're going to hear are these three friends speak. And after each one speaks, Job is going to reply. That's what you would read from chapters 4 through 37. Job speaks, well, through 32, essentially. Job speaks and somebody else, or somebody else speaks, and then Job replies. So listen to the way that the dialogue goes. We're going to hear it first through Eliphaz. He answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you've instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. But now it, suffering, calamity, trial, it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. 
By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Can mortal man be in the right before God? This is a little later in verse 17. Or as he keeps going into chapter 5, he says in verses 8 and 9, and then 17 and 18, As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. Despise not the discipline of the Almighty. How would you summarize what Eliphaz just said? Essentially, if we went back into the beginning, we would hear him saying something like, hey, chill out a little bit. You've been talking. You've been wailing for a while. But remember, you used to be in a strong place and helping out the weak. Now you're weak. Are you going to abandon everything you said before? You're impatient now. Aren't you going to trust God and be confident in him? Isn't he going to be your hope anymore? Because here's the problem, Job. Everything I've ever observed is that trouble comes to those who bring trouble. What does that mean? It means that, Job, your trouble must have been caused, that you're experiencing, must have been caused by trouble or sins that you committed. You've sinned, and therefore you are troubled. That's the problem. He summarizes it there in 17 and 5 and 8 and 9 and 5, 17 and 18. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can you really be as pure as you claim to be? Can you, if, if suffering is kind of peeling off the veneer, are you really pure? Now, just remember, we would, in the Reformed tradition, right, in particular, we would always be the ones to say, yes, sin taints everything that I have done. I get it. There, there are no absolutely pure motives in me the way they were, for instance, in Jesus when he walked the earth. But remember, this is a thought experiment. As much as anything, both the author and God have said that Job is blameless. So the problem is that Eliphaz is saying God is righteous. Job, therefore, you must be corrupt. And so his advice, his advice to him in chapter 5 is, you need to pray, even though Job has already been praying. And he says, you need to make sure that you accept and are willing to embrace the fact that God is disciplining you. You're getting a spanking. Why? Because you disobeyed. Fess up to it, Job. That's Eliphaz's encouragement to him. Now, after 4 and 5 where Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. We're going to get to his response in a moment, all right? But hear that same logic as the next friend starts to speak in chapter 8, verses 1. Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children had sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Isn't, isn't that comforting? Both Eliphaz blaming Job and now Bildad blaming his dead kids. This is the comfort that's coming from the silent friends. And there's a certain sense that you're looking and listening and thinking, oh guys, you should just shut up. You should just be quiet. But they live by one rule. God is righteous, therefore Job must be corrupt. Or, in the case of what Bildad has just said, your children must have been corrupt. That's why they died. For inquire, verse 8 of chapter 8, please, of bygone ages, and considers what the fathers have searched out. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words out of their understanding? Verse 11 and 13. Can papyrus grow where there is no march? Can reeds flourish where there's no water? Such are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless shall perish. We're down to verse 20. Behold, children will not reject, a, or God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Yet he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. So you hear his, his, his essentially advice to Job is based in the exact same way of thinking. Your kids died because they sinned. All I want you to do is think. Go back into everything you've ever heard from the past. Haven't the ancient fathers told you this basic rule? Or let's just use an analogy. Doesn't when it's swampy, reeds grow up? Why do the reeds grow up? Because there is a swamp there in the first place. 
trouble has grown up in your life. Why? Because Job, you are a swampy marsh of sin. Your kids were a swampy marsh of sin. The ancients argue for this. Life argues for this. And this, these are the paths, he says, of all who forget God. So Job, God is righteous. And since you're suffering, you must be corrupt. Now, as you can imagine, as chapter 8 ends, Job is going to answer and we're going to skip Job's answer and we're going to let the last of the friends speak. He's going to make the exact same point using different words. His name is Zophar. Look at his words in chapter 11, verse 1. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men for... And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure. I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. If Zophar has been listening to Eliphaz and to Bildad and thinking, ooh, that's not going well. You got to wonder, is Zophaz going to like sort of backtrack a little? No, he doubles down. He's like, okay, fine, but God knows the secrets of your thoughts and he knows what's going on inside you. And if God were really to give you what deserve, oh, Job, you'd lose your limbs. I mean, you just, things would be worse for you than they are right now. Your God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. He continues on. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty if he passes through and imprisons and summons the court? Who can turn him back? And then listen to the language he uses to describe Job. For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity. Will he not consider it? In implication being worthless men like you, Job, if you prepare your heart, and so here's his advice. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands towards him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will be secure and will not fear. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. So do you see the best of what the friends have offered to Job? It is summarized by what we've got right there. God is righteous. Job must be corrupt. So what have the friends told him? Put away sin and your suffering will end. Why? Because God is righteous. The only reason a righteous God could bring this kind of trouble into your life is if you're corrupt. So Job, don't break or question the rules. God is righteous. And that, you can just hear it, right? That's the language. But we've skipped over everything Job said. So let's just go back and listen to this second approach. Job is going to make another therefore kind of statement. God is righteous, therefore Job must be corrupt. Well, that was them. But he says, no, Job is blameless. Therefore, God must be deficient. Now you can already see from the beginning even before we hear Job, how they're both thinking the same way. The only explanation for suffering is as a punishment for sin. The, sin, the friends are defending God. Job is defending himself. But they're making a very similar assertion, aren't they? And the question is, must God govern the world that way? Well, Job says yes. So listen to Job's response back in chapter 6, verse 1, to Eliphaz and his first assertion against Job. He says, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all the calamity laid in the balances. For it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. Because the arrows of the Almighty are in me, my spirit drinks their poison. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would just please God to crush me. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. He continues in verse 24. Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful and upright are, how forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove 
He says later on, defending himself in verse in chapter 7, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my soul. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He continues later on, 10 verses later. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Do you hear Job's assertions of his own legitimacy, his own blamelessness? He knows I haven't done something according to this calculus to deserve this, but God, you've done it. You're the one who shot arrows into me and I'm now pierced by you. And so it's, it's confusing to listen to Job even this early on and ask the question of, Who's he talking to? Is he talking to his friends because they seem to be representing God? Or is he talking to God directly? But Eliphaz was like, hey, man, you need to talk to God. And Job's like, fine, I'm going to talk to God and I'm going to lay it out before God. I'm blameless. There's some deficiency in your system, God. If you think that this is as bad as it gets, it's, it really isn't. Once Bildad starts speaking, Job responds to him in chapter 9. Truly, he says, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Though, he says in verse 15, I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe he was listening to my voice. Why? Because of the way he's treated me. He crushes me with a templist and multiplies my wounds without cause. He continues in verse 20, 21. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I destroy. He, I say, he, God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. In other words, he's agreeing with his friends. I have seen the way that God treats the wicked. You're right. He brings calamity on them. But now he's doing exactly the same to me. Let, ten verses later. He is not a man as I am that I might answer him. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Do you hear Job's logic? In the beginning, he's making this assertion of his blameless. Now he's doing the same thing, making this assertion that he's blameless. And as he brings his blamelessness before God, he's actually wondering, how am I going to get a fair audience with a God who treats righteous people and wicked people the same way? I need somebody else to come in and be a mediator between me and this one who's treating me this way. I, I don't know what the problem is, but then Zophar starts to speak. And so he, in chapter 12, verse 1, answered so far then Job answered and said no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you I have understanding as well as you but ask the beasts and they will teach you birds of the heaven and they will tell you and he continues on in verse 9 who among all these does not know that the hand of God has done this among who the beasts in other words, he's saying, what you're trying to point out to me does not require wisdom. Trust me, guys. I got the point you're making. You think I deserve this. Don't beasts know this? I mean, doesn't your dog know this? Doesn't your dog know that when it does the right thing, it gets a treat? And doesn't your dog know that whenever it does the wrong thing, it gets a beating or it gets disciplined? It gets whatever your dog gets whenever it clearly needs to be trained the other direction. It's because you reward good behavior and you punish bad behavior. That's the way life works. Beasts know it. God knows it. I know it. You know it. Okay, fine. But I'm blameless. That's his, that's his dilemma. And yet he says, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. So behold, my eye, chapter 13, verse 1, has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. Now, there, there we are. There's Job. And it's starting to get fuzzy. But listen at the very end, chapter 13, ends what we, we, we have here of Job's language, his assertions. He says, how many are my iniquities and my sins? 
Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. It's, it's, it's unclear here in 13, 14 as he's ending. How, who is Job talking to? Is he frustrated with his friends who he really wishes would have just, you know, kept their silence? Or is he frustrated with God? I think the answer is yes. This is bugging Job. Now, here's the problem. Chapters 4 through 14 are just round one. If you did what I dared you to do and you read through the book, you know these are three rounds of this. Each round has Eliphaz speaking, then Job, then Bildad, then Job, then Zophar, then Job. That happens in chapters 4 through 14. I just tried to summarize the first round of it. Trust me that once they go back to the ring, or back to their corners, and then back into the ring for round two, and then round three. And as these guys kind of tag team with each other, and they trade blows with Job, it just gets worse and worse. Now, for sake of time, don't worry. I am not going to take you through all of those. All right? But let me give you the highlights. We'll do a little bit of a recap over things here. It gets this bad that in chapter 22, after they got through the, the second round, as the third round of this begins, so what we didn't hear was Eliphaz speak, Job speak, Bildad speak, Job speak, and then Zophar speak, and then Job speak. Chapter 22 begins, the third round begins, and Eliphaz just decides, you know what? Forget it. I'm just making stuff up. Listen to what he accuses of them. He says, chapter 22, verse 5, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing, stripped naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you. Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? Agree with God and be at peace. Why? What's this conclusive accusation? Thereby good will come to you. The only way that good can come is if you earn it. Because the only reason bad could come is if you deserved it. You see, this represents both the best of what Eliphaz and his friends can, can do and really the worst. Because after two rounds of it, Eliphaz has to come out swinging, just judging him of things that clearly from chapters one and two, we know are not true. This is not the way Job lives. <coughs> the author says it and God said it. But if you think that's how bad it gets, this is like, ah, <laughs> this is like getting into political ad kind of territory here when we start to hear how Job starts to talk about them. <laughs> Listen to some of Job's replies. Chapter 16, miserable comforters are you all. Chapter 17, verse 2, surely there are mockers about me. Chapter 21, the evil man is spared in the day of calamity. Chapter 29, uh, verse 25, all the way through 30, verse 1. I chose their way, and I sat as chief. I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to give the lowest jobs to. He's just, he's just thinking about his glory days, and he's just, he's undone by the fact that the people he used to help are now mocking him and inventing things about him. Job is so done with these guys. He says, is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and let my foot hasten to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. Maybe it's that God doesn't see anything. Maybe that God doesn't, isn't aware. I don't know. But no matter what, Job is saying he's blameless and God is deficient. While the friends are saying God is righteous, therefore Job must be corrupt. And the question that we have to address 
is must God govern our world according to our rules? Is this the way that God has to function? Because for all these chapters, chapters 4 through 31, they're both agreeing with that. And they're saying, yes, God must govern the world according to this principle, what we called last week karma, or the, the inverse of it might be what you'd call like retribution. So, Good things come to those who do good, but bad things come to those who are sinning. And so God has to govern the world that way. It's as though the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't exist. And the book of Proverbs is read not as principles, but promises. Because the only conclusions you can come away from this is that you deserve it or God has forgotten. And if we can pause from Job for a minute, I just want to ask, have you ever been there? Have you either ever been there as one of the friends, somebody else suffering and you coming to them and telling them why God is doing that? A long while ago, I, I broke my hip. I fell from a, a ladder that slipped out from underneath me as and unless the narrative that may have arisen since that time over these last six years, I did not jump off the ladder. I know how to climb a ladder. The ladder slipped out from underneath me, but the, the, the net result of it was that I fell and I broke my hip and I needed to be in a wheelchair for three months. Now, was there a lot God did in my life over the course of that time? Absolutely. Did he slow me down? Absolutely. Was I humbled? Absolutely. But a difficult moment happened when someone approached one of my kids and told them that their dad needed to learn to rest more and that's why he fell off the ladder. You can imagine that was difficult for my child when they came home and were talking to me about that. And I could understand the heart. I hope I could understand the heart behind um, what this person was trying to say. I think what they were trying to say probably in the best way of interpreting it, would have been to say something along the lines of what I just told you in the beginning. I think God could take something like this and he could use it for purposes to help me slow down a little bit, to help me rest. And it was, a, it was in some ways a frustrating, but also a restful time. That said, to say that someone knew exactly why God was doing what he was doing Feels like somebody who knows how to put two and two together and get four and then go to Watson, the best supercomputer out there and say, I know exactly the way the inner workings of this machine works. That's like us who are abacuses at best trying to understand the network of supercomputers that is the mind of God. And usually we make that mistake when we say something like, God did that to teach me a lesson. Maybe. But to say that God did that because, whatever we say next is, I think, where our error is. Because we're using the word because as though we can see into the mind of God and absolutely say something. Now, might suffering come because of sin? Absolutely, it might. And so, Paul even says, hey, it's a good idea for some of you to pray about maybe why you're suffering because there may be a cause behind it. You, you might want to pray about that. But notice the tone that he uses. It's suggestive. It's questioning. It's not making determinative statements. And so we usually want to make sure that we're not living life according to this calculus of Job's friends and being bad friends the same way. We want to make sure that we're not accusing God of having to play by our rules. And though we can be bad friends to each other, and we should certainly learn not to be bad friends from this book and certainly from these chapters, I think the greater danger isn't just so much how we approach others, it's how we interpret our own suffering. How we interpret the things in our life that haven't gone the way we wanted. The moments when we're kind of like Job, where we look back on our glory days and say, why didn't that strength continue? Why couldn't I have had those moments continue on into these days? Why am I weaker now than I was then? 
or maybe something actually disastrous has happened and it's felt completely unfair. Or you could directly tie what's happened in your life to a cause that you stood up for, for Jesus. You didn't do it arrogantly. You weren't a jerk. You could really say, like Job, I think I was not perfect, but I could be blameless in this. And yet as I entered into this and tried to stand up for Jesus, I suffered. In those moments, no matter what the suffering looks like, I think we have to ask this question of ourselves and of God. Do you have to operate according to my rules? In fact, if we make our way out of the book of Job and we haven't been able to locate a moment where we can relate to Job, not just in the ash pit, but in this, this borderline heresy, then I think we're not taking away from this book what the Spirit really wants us to take away from this book. Because the question is, going all the way back to the very beginning, do people fear God for nothing? Or do they only fear God when he's a vending machine for them and gives them what they want out of life? This question, must God govern the world according to our rules, is one that we have to confront inside of us. But the assertion that this section makes, the assertion we had from last week, is that there can be, in the case of a blameless per person like this, someone who is blameless and yet suffers. That can exist in a world governed by God. The second assertion here is, as Job the blameless writhes, nothing makes sense to Job's friends, but with them... We see how incapable we are of clarifying why we suffer. See, I don't think we come away from these chapters, chapters 4 through 31. I don't think we come away from them feeling like, wow, I, good job, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. Nor do we come away feeling fully like Job is on, you know, solid ground. There's something he's wrestling with, and I think we feel nervous for all of them right now. But interestingly enough, what we're going to get to and the parts of Job you may be more familiar with, chapters 38 through 42, we're going to get to that next week. But there's like a preview for the voice of God that comes at the very end of this. And that's through some young kid who's been sitting there listening this entire time. And it's through this guy, Elihu, that we kind of are going to ask we can do some takeaways. How not to be a bad friend. Now, this isn't to say that Elihu gets everything right. He certainly doesn't. And I think that generally speaking, he still makes some of the same mistakes at the end of the day. And yet, there's wisdom that's available for Elihu that doesn't seem to be present in any of the other three friends. So let's just ask a couple questions of how not to be a bad friend as we think this through. First, <clears throat> I think the first thing we can see is that we want to make sure to listen and listen well when other people are suffering. Over and over as he makes his case, because he's young and he's trying to enter sort of submissively to these older folks that have been talking for a very long time, it says in chapter 32, verse 4, now Elihu had waited to speak, and that's from the author, from his own words. He says, I waited for your words. I gave you my attention. I've heard the sound of your words. And I think there's something wise to be remembered in this. It's the same wisdom that the friends actually demonstrated in the beginning. Oftentimes when our friends are hurting, the wisdom of James is very smart. Let everybody be quick to listen and slow to speak. But not just quick and slow. We need to be quick to listen and then students of how we're listening and what we're listening to. Listen and listen well. In fact, one of the great things about how Elihu listens is that he's able to actually, back to Job, quote himself. He's able to, not quote himself, quote Job back to himself. And that's the second thing that Elihu does well is he helps, the, he helps Job consider his words. And that's something we want to be able to do as well. As other people are speaking, we want to sit with them. We want to hear them. We want to be able to hear them so well that we could say, are you feeling like this? And though we might use slightly different words, they'd be able to say, yeah, that, that's it. Oh, thank you. That's exactly how I feel. That could be so therapeutic 
And it can be such a representation of Jesus who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Just our ability not to be able to say, I understand you. That's, that's something only Jesus can say well. But to be able to listen and listen well and say, are you saying this? It really paves the way for them to hear the sympathy of Jesus. But the other thing that, that people often need is sometimes just to have their words reflected back to them. So Elihu can say, Did, do you say it is my right before God? That you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? Elihu's coming back to Job and saying, hey, I've been listening for a while. And I'm curious, is this really your perspective? Do, did you really mean this when you said this? I'm not trying to play word police with you, but I'm just trying to be a mirror, a kind mirror to you. And I'm asking, is this really what you mean? Is this really what you've said? Because often, sometimes it, 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 we don't need to do precise work with people. We can just let them say the things that they've said out loud. We're not condemning them for it. We're just asking them about it. And they can just be able to see it back and say, whoa, is that, that's really what I said. You're right. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Now, the interesting thing is that Job never responds to Elihu. In fact, he speaks starting in chapter 32 and he continues all the way on through verse or through chapter 37. And as he does that, he the third thing that he does that I think we can do is to press people towards God's mystery. He says in chapter 37, verse 2, keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He's speaking to Job about God and saying, listen, listen as God speaks because he says, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things we cannot comprehend. Now, Despite the fact that he doesn't completely undo the assertions that Job and the three friends have had, he does introduce this category of mystery, a beautiful mystery about how God works. In other words, what Elihu doesn't do with the same firmth and, and rigor that the friends do, he doesn't just say, God did this because. Instead, he says, listen to God, because like thunder that you can't quite tell where it's coming from, God has a wonder to his voice and a greatness that we can't comprehend. The fourth thing that Elihu does that I think we can emulate is to help others consider God's wonders. Rightly, right after he was speaking there, he says in chapter 37, verse 13, whether for correction or for his land or for his love, he causes it to happen. So hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Now imagine if you approach someone, you were with them, you listened to them, you tried to reflect their words back to them. But as you spoke, you spoke less words of blame and accusation, less words of certainty about what God was doing. And instead, you invited somebody to marvel at what God has said and what God has done. Even though things hurt, you press them back into trusting a God that they can't explain. I think that in that, Elihu shows us these four things and then he ends with one more sort of piece of advice or example here that we can follow. And he says that we ought to consider the results of God's wisdom. He says in verse 24, therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. And though Elihu was thinking and represents the best wisdom of his day, aren't we grateful that the gospel has entered into this story? And it does similar things. The Bible and the Spirit of God reminds us that we have one who not only heard us, but came to walk our steps with us. He sympathizes with us. And then by his spirit, he can reflect our, our words back to us, search our hearts, know us, and see if there be anything wayward within us. 
Then he can remind us of both the words of God and the love of God that's demonstrated in the Son of God. The Spirit does that for us, reminding us that Jesus came. Reminding us of his promises never to leave us, never to forsake us. Reminding us that he wasn't going to leave us as orphans, but that he was going to prepare a place for us. And reminding us that though we have trouble in this world, he's overcome the world. You see, Jesus represents the best of God's wisdom. And the good news is he didn't come for the wise. Paul tells us, let me conclude with this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Because we represent all those things that God just chose. We were not the wise, we were the fools. We were not the strong, we were the weak. We were not the ones that were honored, we were low and we were despised. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And do you recognize that's what's underneath this assertion, this great assumption, this great, great question? God, you owe me because I serve you. What's underneath that other than arrogance and boasting? What's underneath us parading around all the good things that have come of our life if we think that way? Look, I have a great family. Look, I have a great job. Look, I have a great reputation. Look, I have so much money. And the assertion underneath that, I have served God so well that he owed this to me. What is that at the end of the day? Nothing but our boasting in us. But Paul says and reminds the Corinthians that no human being should boast in the presence of God. So because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption in God. And later he closes so that the one who could boast would boast in the Lord. Now, that gets us two-thirds of the way there. That was chapters 4 through 37, a little bit of a flyby. But what we're going to really hear next week as we conclude the book of Job is what happens when God starts to speak. So as we prepare our hearts and think about what we've just heard, let me pray for us. Lord, we are eager to be addressed by you again in a week. But until that week comes, Father, we want what we've heard in your word to move us. May we be afraid of being friends like these three. May we hear in Elihu the invitation to be better friends. And Lord, may we recognize what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. So thank you for sending him that we might know wisdom and every other good thing from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.